0: and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. As they were talking about these things, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God.
1: Nearly 2,000 years ago, a carpenter's son from Nazareth, called Jesus, rose from the dead. He was in his early 30s. He was well known both locally and nationally at the time. He was briefly mentioned in both Roman and Jewish histories. He was tried, crucified, as a dangerous criminal by the Roman Empire. He really died. The Romans are good at that. He was buried at a known location locally. We saw that this morning. And then, three days later, he rose from the dead left that tomb empty, but for the grave clothes. Can you believe it? I don't just mean like, can you believe it? I mean, it is great news if it's true, but I don't just mean that. I mean, can you believe it? Is it actually true? Is it possible to be certain that it's true, to be confident that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? My aim tonight is to explain why the evidence is not just suggestive, but compelling. That's what Luke, the doctor who compiled this account that we've just read, that's what he was aiming to do. He wasn't an eyewitness himself, but he became so convinced, talking to those who were, that the claims about Jesus were not kind of speculative imagination, weren't just religious fairy tales. He became so convinced that these facts were compelling that he compiled the witness reports to provide us evidence to this information so that people like us can see it and have certainty as well. That's the aim tonight, certainty. But actually, when it comes to questions of life this big, none of us come neutrally. So let me pray for God's help as I speak. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see where the evidence about Jesus leads. Show us the truth, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. It's a simple claim, Jesus rose from the dead. It's a simple question, can you believe it? Just before I dive in, I, I do want to say, and I hope we're kind of aware, whether we're new to looking into Christian things or we've, we've known Jesus for ages, I hope we're aware that a massive amount hangs on whether Jesus actually physically rose from the dead. Is that factually true or not? As Robin mentioned, an apost- the Apostle Paul, who was a friend of Luke's, a companion, he once said that the entirety of Christianity falls apart if the resurrection of Jesus didn't actually happen. He put it like this, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christians are of all people most to be pitied. Why pity? Well, because we'd be living a lie. We'd be thinking that Jesus rose so we can be sure of forgiveness. We'd be thinking that Jesus rose so so I can have a living relationship with him. Today, with my maker, we'd be thinking that. Jesus rose, so, so I'm absolutely safe when I die. Even COVID-19 can't shake my hope and security. We'd be thinking that, whilst all the time he's dead, long decomposed in some unknown tomb in the Middle East. Everything hangs on it, actually. The good news of Jesus hangs on whether this event happens. That means it is not good enough to say that Easter is just a kind of inspiring story of the spirit of someone living on. You know how people sometimes do that, they rewrite the Easter story that way, kind of as if the early Christians claimed that, that it was just his kind of teaching that carried on, his inspirational example or something like that. A bit like you kind of, come Easter there were daffodils, there was lambs, and there was hope as the light of Jesus carried on. No, that's not what they said at all, you just read it. They were specific. They said he actually, physically, factually rose from the dead. We saw him. In real space, time, history, a man rose from the dead. You can understand why some folks might want to kind of airbrush that out of the Bible, might want to rewrite it as an inspiring story about someone's ideas living on. It does sound a bit weird, doesn't it? In fact, after the 4.30 service, someone told me about uh, a famous historian or scientist, I'm not sure who it was, on Twitter saying, just to remind everyone, um, people do not rise from the dead. That was their tweet. And it is the 21st century now. I mean, we believe in science, don't we? We, We've seen how much it can do. Look at the vaccine research. We're grateful for it. But with that comes, I think, a, a pride sometimes that we've kind of grown out of ancient superstition about miracles and resurrections, as if this kind of stuff was was for gullible people before the Enlightenment, people in the Dark Ages, you know. I'm sorry to burst a bubble, but, but even back then, people didn't actually rise from the dead, especially three days after being crucified. In fact, actually, many in that culture were more familiar with death, close up, than we are. We've tended to take it out of community life, into the medical and care industries. But these people knew a dead body when they saw one, much better than many of us. We've got to be aware of that kind of chronological snobbery that says, because we've invented iPhones and microwave ovens, that that, that makes us less gullible than them. I'm not actually sure if you look at the state of our politics or our social welfare, I'm not sure that human nature has massively improved. And actually, more important than that, when you look at these accounts, as we're about to in a moment, you see very quickly that, that no one thought this was normal. <laughs> no one thinks this kind, of, this kind of thing is what happens. No one found it easy to believe it. I do recognize that when folks are looking into Christianity, this, this can be a kind of hard claim to get your head around, to get your heart around. It's easy to think, surely there must be another explanation for the data. Surely they were just having some kind of psychological flashback. After all, they were traumatized. Maybe it was a vivid dream or daydream. Maybe it was um, some kind of hallucination. Dr. Luke wants us to know that doesn't explain it at all. He writes all this so that we can be sure of the objective reality of what happened. Actual factual events. We're going to see four things. You'll see an outline on the back if you want to start ticking them off as we go through. Um, We're going to see four things tonight. The first one is a kind of background point, and then three lines of evidence about Jesus' resurrection. So firstly, the background point. This background point is, Jesus' followers were not predisposed to believe in his resurrection. Let me say that again. Jesus' followers were not predisposed to believe in his resurrection, now, this morning we, we were looking at the, the empty tomb and the women visiting it with Jay. Um, and you may have already heard some of this if you were there. That just before our passage, um, the women have visited the tomb and they went with all the equipment you need for a dead body. They went with spices prepared, they'd spent money and time on things to get ready for, for Jesus's dead body to help with the smell. They were perplexed when the tomb was open and empty. Then in verse 11, just before our passage, they go back and tell the other apostles they found the, the tomb empty and the message of the angels. And Luke records the reaction. Listen to this. These words seemed to the disciples an idle tale. They did not believe them. Striking, actually, that the first skepticism about Easter Sunday happened on Easter Sunday that morning. Within minutes. Even Jesus' own followers thought, surely they must be mistaken. They must be gullible. They must be emotional. It must be some kind of psychological trick. And then we get to our passage. Now, in our passage, there are two kind of big episodes, um, two appearances of Jesus in different situations. One is to two travelers, uh, Cleopas and his companion. They're walking the road to Emmaus, just seven miles out of Jerusalem. The other one is back in Jerusalem with the disciples assembled together. And by the way, just let me pause for a moment. Just notice how specific those scenes are, the kind of details I've just given you. There are named individuals. There's a named place. There's a named date. This is all Easter Sunday. There's a named time. We know it's beginning to get too late to travel, so it's late in the day. This is not, emphatically not, once upon a time. It's not. Uh, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. So two episodes, and we're going to keep dipping into both of them because they're very similar. Um, So let's first notice this first thing, that no one in the story is expecting to meet Jesus, risen from the dead. No one is predisposed to believe that resurrection is where the story is going. Just look at verse 17 with me. Jesus comes along, unknowingly, comes alongside Cleopas and his friends, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Sad. By this point, they've heard the women's testimony that the tomb is empty, that they mentioned there in verse 22, 23. But they're not persuaded. I mean, that's clear. They're not full of joy. They're not like, Hallelujah, he's risen. They're looking sad. Verse 24 says, A few of them went to investigate but him they did not see. So clearly they're thinking, well, that's probably not, it can't be true. In fact, look at their explanation, verse 18. One of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, Now listen to this, verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since all these things happened. We had hoped. We had hoped. But it seems like it's game over now. Because you don't come back from crucifixion. People don't come out of their graves three days later. We don't know where the body is, but it can't be he's alive. It surely can't be. That's the travelers on the journey. It's the same if you jump across to the the assembled disciples in Jerusalem. Just look down to verse 36. Verse 36, just look at their reaction when Jesus turns up. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? They were startled. They were frightened. They they were thinking it must be a ghost. Doubts were arising. They're not people who thought, oh yeah, of course, resurrections happen all the time. It's like on the road. They were sad. We had hoped, they said, See, the disciples weren't people who were predisposed to expect to meet Jesus on this third day. They were as terrified and as confused and as startled as we would be. If Jesus Christ physically walked in through that door and stood on this platform, we would be terrified. We would be thinking, what is that? Ghost? Psychological trick? These people aren't predisposed to expect his resurrection. We mustn't kind of patronize them as kind of just gullible, superstitious, ancient people. Just because they don't have Google, they know the difference between a living and a dead body. Actually, that's an encouragement. If, if you're someone listening in to tonight, and you would describe yourself as pretty skeptical about the claims of Christianity... Maybe you think that, that idea of Jesus rising from the dead, well it's just it's just utterly preposterous. Maybe you like other things that he says or teaches or offers, but it, it can't be true, can it? I mean it just doesn't make sense. It can't be real. Perhaps you're as predisposed not to believe as some of Jesus' disciples were. Or if that's you, you're in good company and there's good news because the rest of the chapter moves them moves them from this skeptical, sad shock to joyful, thankful certainty. How does that happen? Well, there are three big lines of evidence um, that we're going we're to go through, points two, three, and four. And the first one is this, Jesus's resurrection was promised in the Old Testament. Jesus' resurrection was promised in the Old Testament. Um, there's a real irony in this passage. It's, it's surprising, actually, when you notice it. Uh, they're not predisposed to believe. They, they don't have a clue this is coming. And yet Jesus says they should have been. It's funny, actually, all the conversations in this first uh, Easter day are gentle tellings off. So at the tomb, uh, when the women meet the angel, um, the, the angels say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. He did tell you this. That's that's before our passage. And then inside our passage, twice, you get Jesus pointing it out. Um, Just have a look at verse 25 with the travelers. So verse 25, another gentle telling off. He said to them, "'O foolish ones!' And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he gave them the most amazing Bible overview as he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says, why are you so confused? Why aren't you predisposed to expect this? Because God has been saying this. I mean, I know the, shock, the, the cross, sorry, is a shocking way for humanity to be, to be saved. And I know the resurrection is even more surprising. but God has been planning the Easter weekend for millennia, and He's been speaking about it for centuries. He's been preparing the ground all this time. Have you not read your Bible? Have you not read the prophets? And then it's the same when he goes to the assembled disciples, just flick down to verse 44. Sorry to keep jumping back and forth, but verse 44, let me read that. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. There's the gentle telling off again. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Again, he's saying, come on guys, this is in the Old Testament, in black and white. Look, I know it's not every day that someone rises from the dead. God knows that, and so gave plenty of advance warning through his scriptures. Where? Ever thought that? Where specifically does the Old Testament teach that God's saviour would die and then rise from the dead. Lots of places, actually. Far more than we've got time to do now. Uh, In Luke's sequel, for example, in Acts, Peter, one of the disciples, keeps turning to the book of Psalms to show that God's king has to suffer, die, and rise from the dead. But actually, the example I want to show us tonight is from the prophet Isaiah. We'll just look at one example. I've printed it on the service sheet, uh, if you can get the outline in front of you this is from a famous servant song chapter 53 of isaiah it's actually the passage that jesus himself quoted in in luke two chapters ago in his final meal he quoted from isaiah 53 to show the disciples how to understand his death and he used the phrase from verse 12 that jesus would be numbered with the transgressors that is he would end up being tried and killed as a criminal So Jesus went to Isaiah 53, we know that, explaining his death, and I imagine it was part of him explaining his resurrection as well. Because here's the striking thing, and and if you're slightly drifting, I know it's easy to do that um, on a Sunday evening, if you're slightly drifting, just zone back in, because this is really important. Isaiah 53 does not end with the death of the servant, it's an amazing passage. Do, do go and read it. If you've never read that bit of the Bible, read Isaiah 53. It's an amazing passage. It explains the cross so clearly. He was pierced for our transgressions. It's so clear. In fact, the center of it is so clear. I think sometimes we don't even get to the back end because it's so amazing, the bit in the middle. But actually, as you read on, you discover that this servant has life after death. Let me just show you that. So verse 6, we'll start there. This is the kind of summary of why his death was necessary. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then you get a picture of his trial scene. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He doesn't Offer a defense at his trial. Then verse 8, it's a dodgy verdict. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And then we start to get the stuff that makes it clear he's dead. As for his generation, who considered he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Not just dead, verse 8, but buried, verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked, interestingly, so a kind of criminal's death, and with a rich man. That's odd. A rich funeral for a criminal. Odd until you see Joseph of Arimathea in Luke 24 and paying for the tomb. And he'd done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. So let's just pause it there. We're at the end of verse 9 in Isaiah 53. So far it's really clear. There's an innocent man dying on behalf of the sins of others. And he really is dead. There's a number of phrases that make it clear. Cut off from the land of the living. Made his grave with the wicked. He's clearly dead. But then, halfway through verse 10, things start getting really strange because they're strangely positive. Verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. Now listen to this. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I'll divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. That's the bit Jesus quotes. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I wonder if you can see just how strange that is. This is a guy who, by verse 9, was clearly dead and buried. He'd been pierced, crushed, killed, buried. He's dead. And yet, verse 10, he starts to do things, the kind of things you do if you have a long and happy future ahead of you. He shall see his offspring. He he sees his children, sees the family that he's died for. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Or verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he'll see and be satisfied. Or verse 12, he's dividing the spoil with the strong, like he's some kind of victorious conqueror. And then, end of verse 12, it's not just he died for people's sins, he's praying for people. He makes intercession for the transgressors. See, detail after detail after detail says this servant is alive after he's dead. He'll see his children, he'll end up satisfied, he'll get an inheritance and he'll share it around. He makes intercession. He prays for these sinners that he's died for. Can't do that if you're dead in the grave. You see, the Old Testament, this is just one example, but it's one of the clearest. The Old Testament was clear that the cross was never the end of the story. It was one step in the plan. The resurrection was always promised. And Jesus says to his followers, therefore, come on, guys, haven't you read your Bibles? I mean, even if you don't remember the words I told you when I said I was going to rise from the dead, at least remember those words. God's been saying for some time now, this is 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah's writing, some time now God's been saying there will be a righteous king who suffers unjustly to save people and then rises from the dead. It's black and white. Now I realise some again may be listening in and this may be your first time thinking of Easter as anything more than just a good excuse for some extra chocolate. Um, which to be honest is how my children uh, feel about Easter I think. That seems to be the most excitement about the weekend. Um, but, but Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. It's not just an empty kind of wishful thinking fairy tale. No, there's corroborating evidence the climax of a long-running plan that was pre-announced. You can actually go and look at it in the Old Testament. So if you haven't taken that seriously, please do. One of the things I love doing, actually, is is reading the Bible with people who aren't yet persuaded. I'd love to do that if you're you're tuning in and and want to see more of this kind of evidence from before Jesus was born. But that's the first line. Jesus' resurrection was promised in the Old Testament. On to the second one, and don't worry, this will be slightly more brief. Uh, Second big line of evidence, Jesus' resurrection was witnessed in the flesh. Jesus' resurrection was witnessed in the flesh. Again, this happens in both of the episodes, back in Luke 24. Uh, So the sad travellers, they invite Jesus to stay with them for a meal. They don't, at that point, know who he is, but it's getting late. It's too late to walk really safely. And so he comes, and, and verse 30, he's at table with them. And he took the bread. Just so you know, if you're a ghost, you you can't actually do that. He's physically there picking up the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. What seems to convince them here? Well, they've eaten meals with Jesus before. Tens, hundreds of times, I guess. They've seen the way he breaks bread and gives thanks and hands it round. And hallucinations aren't going to do that. It is Jesus in the flesh. They're so convinced by that, that they charge off. They they, they go back the the seven-mile road journey to Jerusalem, even though it's too late to sensibly be out walking. Nothing's going to stop them reporting what their eyes have just seen. Verse 34, they find the disciples and they say, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. But the assembled disciples don't know what to make of it. Then Jesus himself turns up again to provide yet more evidence. Verse 37, he turns up, they were startled, frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. Maybe they'd read that tweet, dead people don't come back to life. But Jesus said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. I think Jesus is just so generous here. I mean, So many kind of exhibitions of incontrovertible proof to them. First, he shows it's not someone else. He's got the marks of the cross. He shows his hands, his feet. He shows he's not a ghost. Come and have a touch. I'm physically here. You're not just seeing things. And then, this is amazing, he shows that he can eat fish. So the fish was on the plate, And then Jesus digested it and it was no longer there. That is, he's actually, factually, physically there with them. Now it's interesting, we don't actually get told every single detail. It doesn't explain everything. So, for example, how did he get from Emmaus to that room where the disciples are? And was he kind of walking at some distance or some other way? We're just not told. Because this is witness testimony, they can only describe what they saw and heard and touched. But what they did see and touch and hear was Jesus Christ. Their friend and their master and their teacher and their king and their saviour was now alive. Jesus' resurrection was proven in the flesh. Perhaps someone here is thinking, well, it's all very well, but we weren't there in the room. We've just really got their word for what's happening What if they're making it up? It's definitely worth checking the credibility of the witnesses. I mean, Do they have a reason to lie? Do they have anything to gain through a fabrication of this particular story? Does the rest of what we know about them make that plausible? Definitely worth looking into that. But to be honest, these disciples are far from a kind of crack squad of propaganda specialists. They're not even courageous. They're a kind of ragtag bunch of scared, dispirited followers. Do you remember on the road? sad we had hoped remember in the room locked away out of fear of the authorities terrified startled most of them had already run away from jesus when he was arrested here's the question if it wasn't the resurrected jesus who got them back on their feet and galvanized them to proclaim him again well what could have Actually, there's more evidence still. See, Jesus points out, and this is our final point, it's not just that the Old Testament predicted his death and resurrection. It's not just that he was witnessed in the flesh, but actually there was one more step of the plan to come. It was in the Old Testament. It was in Jesus' words as well. He said there would be a global expansion of his message the message of forgiveness in his name would be proclaimed to the whole earth. Just look at verse 47. He said to them, Thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is our final line of evidence. Jesus' resurrection, not just promised in the Old Testament, not just witnessed in the flesh, but proven by what happens next. The Old Testament said the plan is clear. Step one, Messiah, the king, suffers and dies. Step two, Messiah rises from the dead. Step three, his message of forgiveness goes global. Rings out, radiates out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And the great thing about this particular promise is that the main witnesses of that phenomenon are not those first century disciples. We are. It's us in this room, in this country, a long way from Jerusalem. They weren't able to see the full extent of this proving true in their lifetimes. They saw the first expansion, but not the global scale. An amazing line of evidence or proof, I think, for us. Because that first Easter, it, it, it was almost absurd for this ragtag group of startled, scared, sad disciples, this group who'd hardly achieved anything while Jesus was with them, and surely would be less effective now that their leader had been got rid of. They're a small team, they've got no experience of political leadership, they've got no huge kind of influence culturally or socially. Uh, no great courage or boldness to date, no massive education, no wealth. There's really not much at all to, to, to suggest that they could make even a local splash, let alone a regional, national, or perhaps global significance. Do you know, there were other people uh, in this the kind of 400 year period running up to Jesus, there were other people who turned up in Israel claiming to be a Messiah claiming to be the great hope of salvation and liberation for God's people. And some of them gained a bunch of followers. Some of them even got other people to fight for them. And their lights burned bright for a while. Actually now, I would guess none of us in this room know their names. Unless we've got an ancient historian here tonight, I can't see one. They were a tiny blip in a tiny country in a tiny slice of time. And then there's Jesus Christ. Jesus whom we're celebrating this Easter day, along with churches all over the globe, across culture after culture after culture, because his plan happened. The way he said it, the way the Old Testament said it. It's worth thinking, if this is a lie, if it was all a lie, how did it possibly take off? The point of origin was the very place... Where they were claiming certain events had happened. These aren't kind of claims of revelation in a cave in private. This is a very public, criminal death of a well known figure in town. It's a claim that a body has vanished from a known local tomb in town. If the tomb wasn't empty, someone could have said. And it's not like they had kind of military clout to just force it upon people. In fact, quite the opposite. If you read Luke's sequel, The Story of Acts, they're under continual censorship and opposition and violence against them really until the second and third century AD there was nothing to gain from publicly proclaiming Jesus and everything to lose there's just no way they would have bothered for a lie as they literally lost their lives one after another one of the real miracles to explain is not just how did the tomb get empty but what happened in their hearts? I mean, what gave them this sudden burst of strength and courage to keep witnessing to Jesus? I mean, Jesus gives us an answer, verse forty-nine. Your witnesses of these things, and behold, verse forty-nine, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, speaking about the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city till you're clothed with power from on high. And actually, it's not even just the the supernatural courage that they found, it's the fact that thousands of millions of people from all sorts of different backgrounds and walks of life have been convicted in our hearts, because I'm one of them, convicted that Jesus is alive, that sin is a real problem, even though all of us like to brush it under the carpet, and that the cross of Jesus is the only way to be forgiven, the only way to deal with it before a holy God. I mean... Who is achieving it all? If not the risen Jesus, just like he said he would. It's too amazing to to, to kind of put into words, really. So, So let me borrow some from, this is an old guy, but a great guy, Athanasius of Alexandria. Listen to how he put it. I'm probably trying to convince people on an Easter Sunday. Listen to this. Dead men cannot take effective action. Their power of influence on others lasts only until the grave. Deeds and actions that energize others belong only to the living. Well then, look at the facts in this case. The Savior is working mightily among men. Every day, he's invisibly persuading numbers of people all over the world, both within and beyond the Greek-speaking world, to accept his faith and be obedient to his teaching. Can anyone, in face of this, still doubt that he has risen and lives, or rather that he is himself the life Does a dead man prick the consciences of people? It's time to close. It's time for me to repeat that question I had at the start. It's a very simple claim. Jesus rose from the dead, and it's a very simple question. Can you believe it? I'm aware we'll come to that question from all sorts of different levels of experience. Some of us here have been Christians for a long time. We know Jesus well. We know the joy of him being alive and in relationship with him. But, but even if you've been a Christian for a while, sometimes the, kind of, the factual foundation can start to feel a bit wobbly. If you haven't thought about it for a while, thought about the evidence. And it's important not to just ignore that. Don't just ignore the doubts, kind of shut them in a drawer... Because if we lose our confidence in the facts, well, as Paul said, pretty soon we'll start to feel like it's a pitiable life. I mean, what's the point of, of battling for holiness or seeking to witness or enduring suffering now if it's all just a pipe dream? If we're not sure whether Jesus is alive and coming back to get us? Well, if that's you, please... Be encouraged afresh this Easter that Jesus really rose from the dead and you can believe it without throwing your brain in the bin. What about the other end of the spectrum? Maybe you just turn up tonight, you're just tuning in on the off chance and you're looking into Christian things. Can you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, tonight might have been enough to show you that you can. I hope hope it is. I'm praying for that. Certainly there's more than one line of evidence, the eyewitness testimony, the Old Testament promises, and the history ever since globally. But you may feel like, actually, I need, to, I need to investigate this a bit more. And if that is you, I would love to look at the Bible with you. Lots of people in Chalmers would love to do that. And reading through one of the Gospel accounts of Jesus is the very best way to look into these things. But on our hearts this week as a preaching team have also been people who've... Heard lots of sermons. Maybe read the Bible themselves. And maybe you'd say you'd like to believe. You kind of look around, you'd like to have the faith that these other people have. But it just feels like you can't kind of summon it up. You can't muster the confidence that other people have. Well, if that's you this evening, my suggestion would be to pray to the living Jesus for help to open your eyes. There's a striking thread in the passage. We didn't have time for it tonight, but there's a striking thread that actually the thing that persuades people is both the evidence and Jesus opening their eyes. And so it'd be a great thing to come to Jesus in humility and say, please show me yourself. There is no doubt that the forgiveness Robin spoke of at the start of this evening The forgiveness that only Jesus can offer through the cross is guaranteed by his resurrection on this day, nearly 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your generosity in not just giving us the Old Testament promises and the witnesses who saw Jesus risen from the dead, but also giving us promises about what would happen next, which we've seen happen throughout global history. And we pray very much this Easter that for those of us who know you, you would fill our hearts with confidence at the living Lord Jesus' resurrection. And we pray for anyone who don't yet know forgiveness in his name, that you would convict them that this offer is real, not fanciful, but real and therefore bring them to trust in the Lord Jesus for themselves. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.